0: across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
1: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is the biggest story about the biggest broadcasting organisation and the biggest blunder ever made involving the biggest family in the world. And if you think any of that's not right, just think about it for a moment. The BBC. The biggest broadcasting organisation in the world. No question at all about that, because it is the state broadcaster. The biggest family in the world. Think of anyone more famous than the royal family and tell me who that would be. I don't think there is one. And also the biggest story. Of all time, about what happened to Princess Diana, how Martin Bashir managed to get an interview with her, and how he managed to hoodwink the entire country into believing that he had some kind of special relationship with the former Princess of Wales. Surely it is the moment the BBC has proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is not fit for purpose. If any newspaper had done what Martin Bashir uh, and the inspired Panorama programme had done, it would have been vilified, castigated, criminalised and probably shut down. Why should the BBC, which hounds elderly women into court for not paying an enforced licence fee and sometimes into jail as well, be any different? Where is Sakir Starmer in this? Such a crusader against what he called the excesses of the tabloids. Where are those woke warriors who called for the jailing of journalists for doing far less damage to the nation state? I suspect we won't be hearing from them because most of them are employed by their beloved BBC. We'll be talking to The Sun's Trevor Cabana, former Fleet Street editor Neil Wallace and former Conservative MP turned talk radio weekend presenter Nick Bois, uh, because of course there's a lot to be said and there's plenty of time to say it. in 0344 499 1000. Angela Levin will join us as well, because on the day that this story has broken, there's also a massive story going on in California. Both Princes William and Harry have castigated and denigrated the BBC for effectively starting the process which ended up killing their mother. Harry's also confessed to taking drugs, drinking to excess, going a bit uh, crazy because he says he was so badly mistreated and his mind was in such a bad way. 0344-499-1000. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. What are you planning? Where are you going? What are you hearing? Uh, We're heading into another weekend. 0344-499-1000. Baroness Claire Fox is going to be joining us too with her take on the cancel culture and yesterday's debate in the House of Lords about getting everyone back to work properly. And we'll be finding out why social media, especially TikTok, is fueling anti-Semitism and the new electronic intifada. In Israel, 0344-499-1000. Kevin O'Sullivan is with us too, ahead of some big shows this weekend. He's just been slagged off by Alistair Campbell about presenting television shows. I think if I was Alistair Campbell, I'd stay very far away from saying anything about what to do if you're presenting a television show. Possibly the worst television show presenter of all time. He's made it onto Plank of the Week, of course, and he's not happy about it. Also, of course, uh, we get another sparkling edition of the Perry Awards in the company of Yorkshire's finest she is, of course, Izzy Rowland. She'll be here later on. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. I've gone on for such a long time, the music stopped. It's Talk Radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let us, without further ado, have a listen to Prince William saying what he has to say about Panorama, that ghastly interview with, uh, uh, with Bashir, and what the BBC should now do.
2: It is welcome that the BBC accepts Lord Dyson's findings in full which are extremely concerning, that BBC employees lied and used fake documents to obtain the interview with my mother, made lurid and false claims about the royal family, which played on her fears and fueled paranoia, displayed woeful incompetence when investigating complaints and concerns about the programme, and were evasive in their reporting to the media and covered up what they knew from their internal investigation. It is my view that the deceitful way the interview was obtained substantially influenced what my mother said. The interview was a major contribution to making my parents' relationship worse and has since hurt countless others. It brings indescribable sadness to know that the BBC's failures contributed significantly to her fear, paranoia and isolation that I remember from those final years with her.
1: Prince William there talking about the investigation by Lord Dyson into the BBC's Panorama programme, which it now turns out was obtained as an interview because of forged documents, uh, practically, I would say, criminal lies made uh, and told to uh, not only Princess Diana, but also to her brother, Lord Spencer. Let's talk now to Nick Dubois, former Conservative MP, author of Confessions of a Recovering MP, talk radio host, of course, at five o'clock tomorrow, Saturday. Nick, a very good morning to you.
3: Good morning to you, Mike.
1: Now, when we asked you to come on the show yesterday, we didn't know we would have this to discuss. But I mean, this is an absolute and utter disgrace, isn't it?
3: Well, it is, and many people will be shocked. Uh, frankly, I have to say, as shocking as it is, I'm not surprised the BBC have uh, behaved in this way. Uh, for a long time, many of us have known that they are a complacent, arrogant, and utterly unaccountable organisation. Mm. And you can see that whilst people are rightly looking at to the behaviour of Bashir, shocking behaviour, which uh, obviously at the centre of this, I think, and Prince William in that very dignified statement, uh, has basically pointed to what is nothing less than a gross cover up that frankly, uh, you know, begins to make things like Watergate look relatively insignificant. This cover up weeks after the actual interview took place, when questions were being asked, as he pointed out, had the uh, BBC fessed up, realized what a shocking uh, maneuvering Bashir had done, that may have that would have at least led the the, the then um, princess diana um, to to know she had been grossly, misled. Uh, So I'm not surprised that this complacent, arrogant and unaccountable organisation has behaved this way. The question is, how much more of this are we to put up with?
1: Well, as other people have also said, how much more of this has been going on? Because it seems to me, I find it absolutely staggering, Nick. You and I have both worked in in politics and the media for long enough. I find it staggering uh, that people like Steve Hewitt, who's no longer with us, didn't know about this, that he was actually lording it over a programme which was basically involved in uh, deception, involved in telling lies, involved in paying people to forge documents. How can you run a television programme and not know that that's going on?
3: Uh, and, and this is where I think the arrogance comes in and the complacency, the belief that they are the moral guardians uh, of, of of this country mm. and that they are above reproach yeah. leads them not to challenge, not to question, uh, not to actually um, uh, 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 think carefully uh, about the editorial standards that they should have been applying and the integrity that they should be applying mm. that is demanded of the rest of us. And do you know, as a consumer here, I know, Mike, uh, that if I get fed up watching Netflix or I think they've done something I disapprove of or Sky News or whatever, Mm. that in my own little way, when I turn that channel off, I'm reducing the viewers. But If enough of us do it, that reduces the viability and income of that organisation. And the unaccountability, the fact is, the BBC, we could all turn off, frankly, and they'd still be getting our money. And, and this is part of the problem. And we have to say, is this organization, even though these things happened a long time ago, are these things, uh, 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 is this organization fit for purpose as a public state broadcaster? And really, should we be expected to carry on paying for this organization that is already losing its competitive edge and is now mired in a history, a history of uh, poor management poor decisions that have had life-changing influence on lots of people
1: absolutely i mean it's interesting to see that both william and harry both princes both sons of princess diana have said more or less the same thing that they believe that this sort of attitude that they took towards her created an atmosphere which made her feel paranoid which made her feel as though everyone was out to get her which made her feel like she was being spied on by uh, palace sources all of which was nonsense Cooked up by Bashir, uh, including uh, various forged documents that would convince her of of the story to be true. Um, And they believe that this was the beginning of the end uh, of what led to her eventually being chased into a tunnel, uh, being driven by some drunken uh, chauffeur uh, in the employ of Mohammed al-Fayed because she didn't trust the royal family and the protection officers.
3: No, and she she clearly had these trust issues before the Bashir interview. And what is so telling uh, is that actually Bashir, it looks like he recognised this and fueled those fears, right. fueled that paranoia so that she would go on air. And the important point about this is that by going on air in that interview, again, as Prince William um, made clear in that, an amazing statement that he made, where it's mm. self-control, I thought, yes. over something that I can't believe does not anger him immensely. That was a defining issue. Princess Diana's own brother draws a direct link between that interview and her death. And I can understand why. And uh, the, the, frankly, uh, until yesterday, and bef- until Prince William made his statement, I thought the BBC will probably be able to deal with this and they will probably emerge pretty much as their unreformed, complacent self. Frankly, his statement, I think, um, has shocked them to the core. I think he speaks for a lot of us. Even those people who, frankly, do value the BBC, um, uh, I think it shocked them to the core. And now it will be very interesting to see if they can survive this in anything like the size and shape of the well, state. This, this
1: I think, is where we have to take this story next, Nick, because, you know, it's very clear to me, and I'm sure it has been to you for many years, the BBC is honeycombed with people who hate the Royal Family, who hate Britain, hate the Tory Party, hate Boris Johnson, hate everything that, that, that talk radio stands for, uh, and that ordinary, decent people in this country stand for, um, and quite frankly, the people who work there would not get a job in any other media organisation in the world, perhaps aside from The Guardian, um, and it can't help but influence the way that they operate as 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 programmers and as news reporters and as setters of the agenda
3: yeah, and I, I, I hope that there's people who are working for the BBC who are thoroughly ashamed, and they will be. I'm sure there will be people in there who will be thoroughly ashamed about this this organisation. But you do point to, to the key point, is those that rightly or wrongly had, had no confidence in the BBC for any of those reasons you listed. And yeah. there are far more other reasons as well. Feel free um, to list some th- more.
1: You know, let's go for them. Well, you know, let's get this- them by the throat, shake them a bit, and see what comes out.
3: Well, my fear is that every time that we see scandals come up, look at the shocking Jimmy Savile scandal and the revelations about how many people actually knew or had deep suspicions about what was going on. And there was an institutional response to that. Uh, You know, we could go on. The point is, there is something about this and about Prince William's uh, uh, and Prince Harry's intervention that makes me think that they have crossed a line Mm. here. And that this, like, it will never be the same for them again. The question is, what will it be for them again? Are we, they've survived this recent battle which they were having with the government. Uh, where they wanted to basically... The government was talking about decriminalising those who do not have the licence fee. Mm. The government gave in on that one, uh, and I wonder if they regret that decision now. On funding, the BBC had effectively resecured its future, as it does in regular negotiations. You know, we have to really ask, if this was any other organisation... Do you not think now there would be huge public inquiries going on, demands that no public money was supporting this organisation? if this was um, uh, 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 the Murdoch enterprise, Well, just imagine if this
1: was the news oh, of the world, right? You know, exactly. think, think back to the days when, and I was saying this earlier um, uh, to somebody just in the office, you know, where's Zakir Starmer, the man who was so enthusiastically uh, ordering police officers to go and dawn raid people's family homes to empty their drawers, to take their children's computers off them uh, to see whether there'd been any wrongdoing. What, where, where, where are all these people? Yeah, there's
3: there's a lot of silent voices, and we should, you know we 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 can note their absence, but actually the government actually now have a key role to play in this, and their response, which has been pretty measured to date, mm. they're literally saying, and the justice secretary Robert Buckland said it this morning, we're going to soak up this report, we're going to read it, and we will ask questions about governance. Now this is where I may part company with the government after a period of shall we say their advice to soberly reflect the point is can governance really make a difference mm. because the argument is this was all in the past there's a new man in charge tim Davy, they'll come along they'll put in new governance procedures and everything will be all right well i i'm not so sure about that how can you govern this frankly monster-sized organization that has shown time after time that there are roads in it Um, uh, uh, who will take them off down the sort of dark paths that um, uh, Martin Bashir has done leading to this situation. There is no management control. There is no effective management control. And, frankly, um, we know that this is an organisation that doesn't reflect the country that it seeks to represent as the state broadcaster. It it really could be curtains for the Mm. BBC. Um, However... If it is curtains, I suspect as ever, they'll be very, very slowly drawn. And yes. meanwhile, their competition... All these private, innovative broadcasters out there, like the talk radios
1: of the world, they have to compete with this yes. on
3: unfair, unlevel totally playing Totally unlevel
1: playing field. field. I mean, I was um, lucky enough to be brought into the radio business by the Wireless Group, which owns us. You know, absolutely full disclosure. Uh, of course, I'm going to big up the company I work for because it happens to be a great company. But we, yeah. start, we launched a, a talk radio station in Edinburgh, right? It was the first talk radio station that had been given a licence by Ofcom since LBC was given one in 1973. That's how few and far between these things are. But it was practically impossible to operate in a commercial environment because of BBC Scotland, who not only had the full kind of um, uh, complement of journalists, you know, about 25 times to one in terms of what we could hire, they paid everybody more money. You couldn't get any presenters to come and work for the station because they were all very happy working for the BBC. Um, and and also, uh, it was very difficult to get advertising because people thought, well, you know, you're not going to beat the BBC. Who's going to? Who, how are you going to well, beat the BBC? Listen to figures. And, and it was impossible. And their whole
3: digital enterprise is funded by the taxpayer. Yeah. Look, we know the BBC do raise some money privately from their commercial interests, but you know, it's not exactly um, a, a world changing, a game no. changing for, for the BBC. No, but I mean, their what they do is they take,
1: but they take our money, Nick. They make programs right. and they then sell them around the world and keep the profits. And, and 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 the point
3: being at the fundamental public money is supporting this organization in ways that people would say well that's not the job mm. of the state broadcaster to do no. many of the things that they get into which puts other companies at a disadvantage this i do think is a game changing moment for the bbc it's going to be very interesting to see how yeah. it plays out and i think the government needs to be careful of not being too woke themselves on this. Yes. Because the assumption is the BBC is loved by everyone. Well, that's true. There is a deep affection for what the BBC stood for. But I can tell you today, there's only a lot of people questioning whether this organisation, this has turned itself into a bit of a monster and is out of control.
1: I mean, would you like to see a proper inquiry going on, Nick, in the same way that there was into what happened with the News of the World, uh, into what happened with with the Murdoch organisation, where people were called before, um, you know, committees in the House and the Houses of Parliament to account for themselves? I think nothing short of that is what we need.
3: I think Tom Boyer, um, who has been on talk radio earlier this morning, yeah. has made some very interesting points. He's actually said there's still other questions to be answered. And he is right. The, the role of um, Bert in this, the former director mm. general, not even addressed, for example. Yeah. So by all means, have that inquiry. But it has to be an inquiry with a purpose. And my, my belief is, you know, are we past the days of the state broadcaster? We're in a completely new world now. Yes. The BBC have just been held to account in news today that is going relatively unnoticed by the Public Accounts Committee, where they have shown a complacent attitude to innovation and development, a complacent attitude to losing audiences. Um, And and frankly, you have to say, if you were a private investor, you wouldn't put your 157 quid, uh, or whatever the licence fee is precisely, into an organisation that seems to be going nowhere and has an utterly reckless and incompetent management.
1: Yeah, I could not have put that better myself, Nick. Now, uh, just finally, obviously, you're up uh, with us tomorrow, five o'clock on Talk Radio Saturday afternoon. Great show. What have you got for us this week?
3: Well, I have to say, something that's going little unnoticed, but um, I'm really pleased to be able to put Brexit back on the agenda Mm. tomorrow. Now, why am I doing that? Because of the trade talks uh, between Australia and uh, the UK that the government are desperate to conclude before the G7 conference next month. Mm. And this really is a precursor to the sort of trade talks and free trade deals that Brexit promised. And the dilemma is here. Do we go for tariff-reducing, um, measures right across the board including farming which is very contentious with Australia and let consumers benefit from price reductions let consumers benefit from being able to make a choice on the types of meat and food that they want and save in their pocket which is what Brexit trade deals promise to do or are we going to be fighting an interventionist rearguard and protecting our own farmers in this case, to the point that consumers do not benefit. Mm. And I'm all for free trade. I'm all for opening up the barrier, reducing the barriers to help consumers. We'll be looking at that um uh, for the first hour of the show tomorrow
1: fantastic stuff nick great to talk to you great to see you hopefully now that we're all able to uh we should have lunch or something one of these days but uh, well, i shall be in touch nick dubois former conservative mp author of confessions of a recovering mp a great book by the way uh, but also talk radio tomorrow from five to seven every saturday uh, he's going to be talking brexit there's a word that you haven't heard for a while and i must say i'm sure if you're boris johnson this morning you're thinking goodness me Isn't it nice not to be on the front pages for a change? Because it's all about Martin Bashir. It's all about the BBC. It's all about what has gone wrong at the National State Broadcaster. It looks to me like an awful lot has gone wrong. And I'm going to call for this, right? I'm going to say it right now. Let's just shut it down. Shut the BBC now. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The BBC let down my mum, my family and Britain, right? Now, that is a quote from the future uh, king of this country, the future king of the United Kingdom. Prince William has said the BBC's lies fueled my mother's paranoia. Basically, he and his brother Harry uh, in what for Harry has actually been something sensible that he's come out with for the first time in a while. Uh, They're more or less saying that this was the beginning uh, of the path that led to Diana, Princess of Wales, dying in a tunnel underneath the streets of Paris because she didn't trust the people that she was supposed to trust, i.e. the Royal Protection Squad. She didn't trust the people that she was supposed to trust, i.e. those members of the royal family uh, with whom she had had relationships but was now outside of. And instead, she put all of her trust in Mohammed Al-Fayed and his rather dodgy collection of bodyguards. And that was what eventually led to her death. It's a staggeringly massive story, this. Let's talk to Neil Wallace, who is, of course, former Fleet Street editor, media commentator as well, uh, a man who knows a thing or two about investigations. Neil, this is an extraordinary story, isn't it? Uh, it really,
0: really is. It's pretty extraordinary. extraordinary is the only word to describe it
1: Mike yeah I mean I can't imagine and I'm sure you can because you went through a bit of this what the reaction would have been if this had been something that a Murdoch newspaper had cooked up uh, that the news of the world had been involved in this is the BBC the state broadcaster supposedly you know the most ethical broadcasting organisation in the entire world they're nothing but a bunch of cheats and liars and thieves I think
0: it's a classical example uh, to be honest, Mike, of um, how cultures get endemic in an organisation. And you refer to the phone hacking quite rightly when the entire, entire establishment went after, first of all, the news of the world, and then all tabloid uh, newspapers to to try to destroy the power they had. And they used it. And uh, many, many people, such as myself, ended up in um, the Old Bailey, uh, facing criminal charges that had led to some others uh, facing uh, serving jail times and then being clear this is not happening here. Right.
1: So well, the most um, important you've left out the most important part of that, Neil, which is that you personally were on bail, unknowing uh, what your future was going to be for almost a year. Four years, four years, blimey, four oh. years, in which time
0: I lost my marriage, my home my life savings and uh, a career. fortune I've managed to rebuild most of those, but it was catastrophic. But Mm. what interests me is this. Um, I do not understand how the the, um, Scotland Yard, that was so eager to pursue journalists when they worked for tabloid newspapers, have blithely dismissed any idea of pursuing uh, Bashir Mm. over this case. Now, I'm not a believer in police getting involved in journalism. But the difference is staggering. The other thing is, if you look at the people who were responsible for this 25-year cover-up at the BBC, that you could argue to some extent is still ongoing, Yeah, all of them benefited from the cover-up. If you look at everybody who said, no, nothing to see here, Gov, when they first looked at... Uh, Bashir and the dodgy documents, they all went on to glittering careers, mm. every single one of them. Can you imagine the scandal that, and the uproar at the BBC, not least the BBC, if something similar had happened in a national newspaper? And um, I am sadly glad to see Uh, the coverage this is getting wall to wall. But there's an excellent, excellent piece by Tom Bauer Mm. in The Times today that raises many further questions because lots of things remain unanswered here. And the other thing that strikes me is if, again, this had been national newspapers, people would have been driven from office, driven from honours, driven from um, uh, future positions that they have moved on to. Is that happening here? No. Um, Lord Hall is still running huge uh, international organizations. Uh, One of his uh, acolytes similarly running Tim Gardner, I think it is, running a major, major uh, part of the British media landscape. They all moved on. They all benefited. Mm. And this is a symbol of how uh, embedded The BBC establishment is with the establishment, uh, the greater establishment in this country. And yet we have seen
1: how rotten they are from the inside. It's incredible. And also, uh, Neil, the thing that I find staggering um, is that, you know, not only is the BBC expecting to just carry on as normal and hope that this won't um, really rock the boat in any way, shape or form. At the start of this week alone they weren't even going to show the programme. They'd made a decision that, you know, they'd filmed this Panorama investigation into Panorama, but actually we won't bother putting it out there because it might be a bit embarrassing. And it was only because of the uh, uproar uh, from the rest of the media that they actually even agreed to put it out there. Well, that's yet another
0: example um, of how endemic this problem is. That, don't forget... uh, So Bashir left the BBC many years ago. He was welcomed back in 2016 Mm. by the very guy who it now transpires, who was then head of the entire BBC, who it now transpired, led the cover-up. And I'm afraid it was a cover-up. Lord Dyson is surprisingly gentle. Incredibly different, incidentally, from Lord Leveson, who was excoriating about anything whatsoever to do with the print media. But Lord Dyson's very gentle and said, um, uh, implied that uh, the failure to actually question uh, Princess Diana's brother um, was just a mishap. It wasn't. It was a deliberate, considerate decision not to ask questions that could have resulted and would certainly have resulted in embarrassing answers. And these people, the culture they have uh, created, the culture they were part of, still runs the BBC. Uh, the current director um, has come out, yes, and he's uh, issued statements about how sorry they are and lessons will be learned. Less than a year ago, he was refusing to conduct a future... Uh, a further investigation into this. Yeah. He was saying, he was still saying, nothing to see here. And this is a good guy. But Lord Grade has been well worth listening to on yes. this over the last. Yeah, I saw him last uh, couple, night. Yeah. The, the, well, he was very good on the Today programme this morning. Ah. But all the way through, he points out that there's a huge problem is the BBC believes the BBC is always right. Mm. And the fact of people like you and me who've said the emperor has no clothes are derided, mm. they're ignored, they're dismissed, nothing to see here. And they continue to run the place believing if the BBC says one thing, it must be true. Whether it was Brexit, whether it's uh, about the Middle East, whether it's about uh, the Bashir interview, it is always we must be right because we want it to be this way mm.
1: and it's a huge huge problem and it has not gone away no it hasn't and surely if the uh the, the heir to the throne uh is literally calling for um you know what is going on on front page of the sun here the bbc let down my mum my family and britain right surely to god the very least the government should do is organize a, a parliamentary committee drag some of these people in, put them in front of the cameras and question them as to what they did, when they did it, why they did it and what they knew about what Bashir was doing. Because I don't believe that nobody knew he was paying a forger and paying uh, to make stuff up. Well, you touch on something very
0: interesting there. I I couldn't agree with you more. Um, But have you noticed in this uh, how there are two little guys who were caught up in this? You called him the forger. He was the guy who worked for the BBC who was commissioned by one of his bosses to create a document. He was the original whistleblower. And you know what happened when he went in and said, I think Bashir has used this in a wrong way. I think he's um, been corrupt here. He got sacked. Mm. He got driven out of the BBC and has had to scrap a living elsewhere. Another... Uh, one of the whistleblowers, a fellow, producer on Panorama. He similarly was kicked out and told to look for a career elsewhere. Why? Because he tried to blow the whistle. They're not mentioned. They're not really mentioned in the report. I tell you what, those guys deserve huge Mm. uh, compensation, never mind anybody else. But I come back to the thing that this is embedded within the BBC. This is part of how it works at the top. They cannot be wrong. We cannot allow anything to get in the way of us cruising along, and that includes the truth. The things that they would hold you to account for, they've held me to account for. I've had the BBC reporters screaming at me on my doorstep after I was wrongly arrested by the police Mm. over this. And the message always was, we're the BBC. We can do what they like. Mm. And over the last forty-eight hours, I've had various conversations with various BBC people, who time and again have said, "Well, that was twenty-six years ago, wasn't it?" You know what? Oh, that's all right then. That's that's all right. No, it's not, because it's still here now, mm. live at the top of the BBC. The same people, or the ones who were around them at the time, are still there.
1: Mm. Absolutely right. Neil, listen, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Neil Wallace, former Fleet Street editor, media commentator, on bail for four years. Four years, that is, having not actually done anything wrong, having not in the end been convicted of any crime, having had his life ruined, not least by a load of BBC reporters who would turn up day after day after day trying to get him to say something absolutely ridiculous i'll tell you what we need to do we need to get a root and branch reform going on inside the bbc i would like to see it shut down and start again and keep the bits you want and get rid of the bits you don't want stick a pipe cleaner into broadcasting house and root out all of the scum because there's plenty of it in there Mid-morning with Mike Graham, Talk Radio. Now let us say a very good morning to Baroness Fox, or Claire, as I like to call her. Claire, very good morning to you. Good morning. How are you doing?
4: I'm very well, thank you. Now we got lots. Now, of talk- there might, now Mike, just a warning: there might be some interference because there's lots of building work going on next door. Oh,
1: really? Is that but in- we can't
4: moan. Okay, it's life going back to normal.
1: Well, exactly right. Sorry. And is this in your home or is it in uh, work? Yes, it's in, it's, it's in my home. Oh, okay. And
4: they've suddenly decided to renovate
1: the home next door this season. <laughs> well, well listen, loudly. as you say, I mean, uh, it's, it's a good sign that things are getting back to normal. Exactly. It does seem a little bit busier out there. Um, the Commons uh, on Wednesday for Prime Minister's questions was a little bit more full uh, than it was the week before. Um, how are things at the House of Lords? I see that you were having a debate yesterday about trying to get back to sort of normal working practices.
4: Well, actually, you know, some signs of hope. There was definitely more physical peers around rather than zooming in. Mm. And they've actually reduced the social distancing from two metres to one metre, which means that more people can appear in the chamber. Right. Interestingly, they kind of announced that and then said, but that means that you now have to wear your mask in the chamber. Yeah, I was really, really annoyed because you actually have to sit through like nine hours of debate some days yeah, know, in a mask. But I was gratified to notice that although um i think the lib dems carried on wearing their masks although a few people started off wearing them you know by about a third of the time through this debate, on returning to normal. Everyone took them off. That's good. And I never had them on. So well, I'm, I'm
1: glad well, I'm glad to see the House of Lords is leading by example because I'm the same now. Exactly. I've got so fed up with it. I mean, I've now got to the point where if I'm going on a train, I've gone back to what we did uh, back in the early days where I put the mask on actually on the train. But as soon as I step off it onto the platform, it comes off and I don't wear it through the station. I don't wear it on the escalator, you know, because it's so it's so intrusive. It's so horrible
4: yeah so i i mean i think that it was just a sign and something for us to watch out for which is we're going back to normal but you're going to pay a price for it yeah. you know what i mean it's kind of like a kind of almost punitive thing mm. anyway the point being that um there was a debate yesterday and i think it's an important debate actually about whether parliament needs to resume normal duties mm. and now to give the government credit which is a rarity for me <laughs> they are actually advocating that parliament both the commons and the house of lords they can't tell the house of lords what to do the commons but that they're advocating a full resumption of normal in june on june the 20th like everyone else and it seems absolutely appropriate doesn't it that if you're going to tell the rest of the country that they're to go back to normal that you don't then have parliamentarians Mm. saying no but you would be absolutely amazed that sadly quite a, a kind of a big chunk of the uh, Lib Dems and quite a lot of the Labour people who spoke were saying, yes, but, yes, but, mm. slowly, slowly, cautious. Mm. And they were making the point that it's so much more convenient if you're coming from far away that you can just vote remotely or that you can Zoom in. But there was some very fine speeches. And again, this is an unusual thing for me to say. Mm. I maybe saw the House of Lords at its best yesterday. Mm with some of the more experienced parliamentarians on all sides just saying is parliament can't be organized around our convenience and we have to give a lead and one of the downsides of the way parliament's operating at the moment is that everything is organized through lists and you have time limits and it's completely sterile, and there's absolutely no way of holding ministers to account. No, you know the minister says something, but you've made your speech, so you can't interrupt right. and say that's just not true, is it, or that's made up, right. or can you clarify? So the sooner it goes back to normal, the better. And I'm hopeful that at least yesterday's debate showed some character by the majority of people mm. who spoke to just say, "Come on, we've got to." Get over this now. Yes.
1: Also, by the way, it's all very well saying, oh, actually, it's quite convenient working from home. Well, it's not meant to be convenient. You know, we're supposed to go to work. That's the whole point. You know, it's all very well people sitting about with their lovely laptops gleaming in the garden uh, and sitting under a, you know, sort of, uh, you know, some kind of makeshift tent where they're all having a lovely time. But the point is is that, you know, the city needs people back in it. The, the The office blocks that are lying empty need to be occupied. And the shops and the services that people make money from, ordinary working people, by the way, who can't work from home, they need to be able to make a living.
4: And also, I just think the whole atmosphere of society is rendered slightly, you know, impotent and immobilised mm. by the fact that people are sitting in their homes. Mm. And we all know that it's in the informal spaces when you go to work I mean first of all work is that you go to work and you do a job and it's different than sitting at home and just technically getting through it but also you have creative conversations you have arguments you have gossip you are somehow much more productive in a different kind of a way it's not just a technical thing you actually behave in a sociable way to try and solve the problems of your particular workplace Mm. and as you've rightly pointed out Mike for millions of people, they've had to carry on going to work. Yeah. Care workers have not been able to say, "Can I zoom in, please?" It's no, not exactly. convenient.
1: And people that work in shops, people that work in, in you yeah. know, supermarkets, people that work in restaurants and bars, which are now open, and people that service all of those people, you know, need to be able to make a living. You know, we can't have this kind of f- intensive kind of furlough scheme that goes on forever.
4: Yeah, I, I, but I think it's more that it's not even the furlough thing. I think it's a certain. I think we've got to be honest and say that people have had the stuffing knocked out mm-hmm. of them in yeah. a lot of instances. I know that there's been some discussion about the mobilization of fear. And that has, you know, that has worked mm-hmm. to a sense that people have been frightened. But I don't think it's that. I mean, you also, we're all the same. I mean, I think even I can say, you know, I like to pretend I'm like all this like bullshit out there, mm-hmm. but I probably am a little bit more wary, you know. I'm 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 kind of not as And I have to force myself to go out into the world. Mm. Then when I do, the adrenaline kicks in. I'm fine, right? Yeah. But it's, you know, one thing about providing a comfort blanket is it's comfortable. You know, you end up being a little bit narrower. Yes. You sort of think, do I really have to make the effort Mm. to go to that meeting? Can't I just Zoom you? Right. Whereas I think that, in a way, we have to encourage each other and say, come on, this is actually part of the great thing about society is when we force ourselves to get out of the house, it's quite exciting, Absolutely. it's quite good fun.
1: Well, also meeting other people, talking to other people, you think of things that you don't think of, you know, whichever way you want to communicate. You know, you and I are having a conversation because we're on the radio and that's fine. But if we weren't on the radio, it would be a bit weird. I would, I wouldn't want to be talking to you like this. I'd want to be talking to you down the pub, you know?
4: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the other thing is, is that the atomization of being isolated for all this time means that we, you know, we inevitably we all become a bit one sided. You know, you you're not having a full conversation yeah. with people. People have developed a few eccentricities. You know, people have got mad theories mm-hmm. about things because they're actually looking in the, you know, the dark web, rather than <laughs> yeah. having a conversation, you know, you think, "Oh God, where have you found that from?" And they yeah. say, "No, I've been up all night looking at videos." Yes. You think, oh, that bad yeah. side.
1: Well, better than watching. Pa- you... It's better than watching Panorama.
4: Well, that, that might be true, but all I'm saying is, when we all get together, you then have a conversation in which you mediate what you're saying. You kind of learn from each other, mm. don't you? That's part of the joy of sociability. You do, but you know, Panorama is that. Should we talk about that quickly?
1: Yes, please.
4: Well remember you've got to bear in mind i'm a bit of a bbc lover
1: mm.
4: right so i i want to defend the bbc in the ideal sense yeah i'm not anti the um, i'm not anti bbc particularly and i've done enough bbc radio yeah. over the time this panorama issue however is a great disgrace for them yeah. i hardly need to i to think it's a very out. low
1: point for them to be honest
4: it's very low but i think it's been the way they dealt with it afterwards yeah which is, it's one thing having a rogue report, you know, a panorama that was so keen on its own editorialising that it, Mm. it broke flagrantly broke the rules of, of journalistic ethics. But then the problem has been that they didn't want to be answerable to anyone when they were queried on it. And it's that kind of arrogance that we're the BBC and we're not beholden to answer your questions. And, now it's taken such a long time for this story to be revealed when many of us knew it was true anyway mm. and i think it's significant that it's panorama because this isn't just any old program this is meant to be one of their flagship current affairs programs and to be discredited in this way i think means that they have to seriously think if people are going to trust us you know they can't just say oh it's mike graham over at talk radio having a go at bbc the usual suspects mm. I thought it was interesting that Amal Rajan, who is one of their bright young things, and by the way, a brilliant broadcaster, yes. has just gone on the Today programme, but he actually gave a damning indictment last night and just, you know, talking about his own organisation, wasn't in any way defensive and didn't flinch from the criticism. And I think that in that sense, they know that there are rivals on the block. They've got GB mm. News coming up. They've got uh, talk radio. Lots of people I know, Mike, you'll be glad to know. Have stopped listening to, to Radio Four, Radio Five, and I've started listening to talk radio. Right. Brilliant that they're going to have to compete Mm. and up their
1: game. Yes. And the great thing about Amal Rajan, though, and I know Amal a little bit, is that he's not BBC dyed-in-the-wool type, you know, whereas there are a lot of them who are, who literally would never hear a word said against him. And Amal is genuinely independent. Uh, He's a proper media commentator. He looks at everybody in the same way. Uh, And so, therefore, his view is a worthy one. But there's far too many of them in there, in Broadcasting House, who you will have met, Claire, who absolutely think that the sun shines out their backside and they think they can do nothing wrong and everybody else is, it, is less than them, you know.
4: But it's quite interesting because Amal Rajan is... We've got to not fetishise that particular person, but in a way, he is what the BBC was. Yes. There used to be loads of people like yep, that. Absolutely. You know, they, they were quite independent thinking. There's, a, there's far too much think, mm. There's far too much defensiveness and there's far too much an assumption that their worldview is the one which everyone else should share, and their job is to inculcate that into yeah. the nation, yeah. rather than giving a wide range of views in which the nation can work their, work out and find out what they yeah. think about it. So you were saying there should be a public inquiry. I mean, and you say that the that, has that, that got away without being punished. I mean, I think, actually, if you're a journalist, to have your reputation publicly destroyed like this... I mean, to me, that is the great indignity. of Yeah, but all he's time, been paid
1: man. for a long time, though, Claire, no, by us, by no, with our true. money. Um, he hasn't appear- apparent. I mean, he hasn't apparently suffered. <laughs> I imagine he's probably got quite a nice pension from the BBC, which we've also paid for. I don't, you know, I'm like you. I don't want to see people punished, but I would like to see people being called to account, and I would like to see what they did to the Murdoch organisation and newspapers, do to the BBC, call them before a parliamentary committee, let them answer for it.
4: Yeah, I mean, I suppose I'm just kind of anxious about that because I hate the idea of Parliament holding the media to, you know... Well, somebody's going to um, gonna do it, though. Yes, I know, but I think you do it very well, and that's what I'm saying. It's the court of public mm. opinion. All, right. I, I, all I'm saying is I didn't like it when Parliament told Murdoch Press how to behave mm. because I worry about press freedom, I suppose. That's sure. my thing. I, I'm just te- terrorised it'll be used to, in that way. But, I mean, I understand the hypocrisy is too much, and mm. they also re-employed him. I mean, I think that was
1: a a telling sign. Yeah, and I I honestly, I cannot believe it, knowing what I know about the way the media operates, that no one inside the BBC knew what he had done. I find that extraordinary.
4: I I think it's unlikely, let's put it that way. Yes, let's put it Um. that way.
1: Let's talk a little bit about where else it's difficult to operate, and and you've been uh, interesting about Professor Eric Kaufman, who's talked about um, not so much the cancel culture as such in academic places, but the fact that people are kind of on a daily basis worried about what they say and frightened to say the things that they believe?
4: Well, I think that it's just interesting. So uh, Professor Eric Kaufman uh, is somebody who, he's a demographer, um, he's written lots of books on different demographic changes, which inevitably means that he's talked about issues around different ethnic groups travelling around the world where they live and so on and so forth, right? That's part of his academic work. He's also been one of the people who's been most supportive of and vociferous about um, the cancel culture on campus and he's really supportive of the bill being put before parliament, that there should be a law on academic freedom to protect it. So guess what's happened is a group of people who say that Eric Kaufman exaggerates all of this Um. stuff, that actually there's no free speech crisis on campus, it's all a Tory get up plot to attack student unions. And then his own own college, the Anti-Racist Network at Birkbeck College have basically put out a series of tweets in a poster calling for him to be sacked mm. because he's got the wrong views <laughs> on demography. And they say that is an example of white supremacy, which is absolutely an atrocious slur and, and, and slander. Yeah. Even though Eric Kaufman and I don't particularly agree on lots of things, it's just such an irony that they say it doesn't exist, but we want him sacked. Yeah. And they've really tried to build up a lot of support for it. And I, I think it's worth, I mean, you may have discussed it already, but, you know, there's two examples this week where it's not just academics, but a student at Abertay University, Lisa Keogh, uh, she actually, in a lesson on feminism, had the temerity to mention that women had vaginas mm. and that testosterone might have an impact on, you know, somebody's sporting ability. Yes. And she's being disciplined. Right. And then at Manchester Met University, uh, a trainee teacher-trainer a student who wants to be a teacher, actually sent a, a, you know, an email to his head of department and said what, asked him what he thought about the uh, fact that the Batley Grammar School teacher, who's had to go into hiding mm. for his life... Still in showed, hiding. Still in hiding, and, and has been suspended from his job. Yeah. And the student said, well, you know, it's, isn't it disgraceful that the teaching unions haven't supported him, that mm. no one has supported him, that this teacher... Yeah. And he, he said, I'm a trainee teacher, and I would show that cartoon. Guess what? He's been called to a disciplinary procedure mm. and has basically been threatened that he might never be a teacher. Now, I think when you've got a climate like that, in which students p- saying perfectly reasonable points of view, yeah. obviously uh, uh, important points of view from my point of view, as far as I'm concerned, I'm glad that there are students saying that. Mm. Then you've got a professor who has uh, been threatened with the sack. I think we can safely say we've got a free speech uh, uh, Well, proper. we do.
1: And also, you know, it, it, you've even um, I'm inadvertently fallen into the trap of saying, you know, um they're not saying anything, you know, terrible, but they should actually be able to say anything they want, exactly. shouldn't they? I mean, it, if they, if they, they want to say something terrible, let them say something terrible and let somebody yeah. argue with them, you know?
4: A- absolutely right. Absolutely right. That's the whole... Uh, you, you're absolutely right that, that as it happens, I think that but in both those instances I agreed with them. But that's why I wanted to stress that mm. with Eric Kaufman, I could tear his book, you know, to pieces. I don't agree with it all the right. time. And there are always going to be people. The whole point about having academic freedom and free speech is that you defend the right of people who you disagree with yeah. to argue their position. Exactly. And particularly in a university campus, it's just so egregious that a place where in a way you have a duty to prod orthodoxies to query the mainstream way of doing things not not to be the awkward squad but yeah. part of the pursuit of academic truth is surely that you ask questions you look at the evidence you say well i disagree with that evidence you argue over it mm. that's how we've ever got anywhere and um, how we've developed you know you, you're not going to develop new scientific innovations, by the way, if everybody just passively sits
1: mm. there and repeats the same old, head, same old. Well, I mean, that's it. So I mean, that's you're, true you're a, in everything. You're a director of the Institute of Ideas. It's not, you know, the Institute of Ideas that everybody agrees on, is it? <laughs> Goodness
4: knows. Right, and I've also got to correct you. Go on. This is not your fault, but it's the Academy of Ideas. Oh, is it? Oh, not, well, that I, blame, I, to...
1: <laughs> I blame the staff for that one.
4: Exactly, exactly. But but that's actually quite important because actually we were called the Institute of Ideas for about 20 years. Right. And then when I stood for the Brexit party, it started complaints started to be made that we weren't a proper institute. Okay. And suddenly we got an official diktat that we had oh, to change yeah. our name.
1: Well, what's, what's the definition of an institute then? What do you have to be to exactly. be Exactly. Well,
4: I discovered that there was a legal definition really? of an institute, which I'd obviously never known about. And it's, <laughs> would you believe, a protected word in the law.
1: How bizarre. And
4: so there's, exactly, it's totally bizarre. Also, we'd existed as the institute for yeah. so many years. Anyway, we are now the Academy of Ideas. Okay,
1: very good. Um, well, but well, anyway, I mean, you're le- right. Go There's on, lots sorry.
4: of ideas I've got that people don't agree with, yeah. but we put on big festivals like the Battle of Ideas Festival in which you come and have an argument yeah. and a row about ideas. They're not a set thing. They're not a dogma.
1: No. Well, one of my favourite things that you ever said to me was when I first met you and you said, you know, people said to me at the beginning when I started hooking up with the Brexit party, you know, uh, is that not going to be bad for your reputation? And it turned out that you were worse for Nigel Farage's reputation than he was for yours. <laughs>
2: exactly. Exactly. I think it's sadly,
4: Exactly. Sadly, sadly, my uh, historic past and things that people try to say, you've got to denounce and apologise for this, otherwise you're going to get cancelled. And let me just say now, I think that whole denounce what you previously thought in order to not get cancelled is a a form of of bullying that I don't think we should have to give in to. Uh, It it, it almost makes it impossible to have the conversation about what it was, because I just say... I'm not gonna denounce what I thought 25 no, years ago no so that you will give me permission to be what acceptable Yeah, and, sad? and
1: also you might not even agree with yourself back then but why would you have to tell that to anybody else you know don't get stuffed as far as I'm concerned but there's no doubt you'll get a load more abuse today for having appeared on this show so um, I look forward to reading Always. It. I look forward to reading it later Claire look nice to see you uh, we'll have to get a lunch or something sorted out once uh, uh, once I can clear the old diary because uh, it's very full at the moment for some reason loads of people go right let's go out you know, but we'll see you soon. Baroness Claire Fox, of course, uh, of Buckley, non-affiliated peer, director of the Academy of Ideas, don't you know? Not the Institute. Apparently that's not allowed. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, before we seek the counsel of Trevor Kavanaugh, let's just have a listen uh, to what Prince William had to say
2: about the BBC. It is welcome that the BBC accepts Lord Dyson's findings in full, which are extremely concerning that BBC employees lied and used fake documents to obtain the interview with my mother, made lurid and false claims about the royal family, which played on her fears and fueled paranoia, displayed woeful incompetence when investigating complaints and concerns about the programme, and were evasive in their reporting to the media and covered up what they knew from their internal investigation. It is my view that the deceitful way the interview was obtained substantially influenced what my mother said. The interview was a major contribution to making my parents' relationship worse and has since hurt countless others. It brings indescribable sadness to know that the BBC's failures contributed significantly to her fear, paranoia and isolation that I remember from those final years with her. That is, the heir to the Throne describing a programme made
1: by the BBC probably the most trusted uh, media organisation in the world, brackets alleged. A 1995 interview in which the man who did it, Martin Bashir, used what could only be described as underhand techniques, what you might describe as unlawful techniques, forged documents, made up bank statements, and also just a genuine kind of thread and pyramid um, of deceit, which he built in order to snare a woman who was at the very least vulnerable. Let's talk to Trevor Kavanagh, political columnist at The Sun. Trevor, very good afternoon to you. Hi, Mike. Hard to imagine a more incredible story, really. I mean, I said it's the biggest story about the biggest broadcasting organisation, about the biggest family uh, in the world. All of that's true. Uh, The stories don't
5: get much bigger than this, Mike. You've got the future King of England accusing the BBC and Martin Bashir of basically killing his mother, the Princess of Wales. Yeah um where do you go from here i would have thought straight to the law courts
1: well i would have thought so i mean i'd be quite astonished actually i was talking to claire fox earlier she said that she was she was sort of uneasy about the idea of of the bbc being held to account by politicians and 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 being called before parliamentary committees but at the end of the day that's what they did uh, to news uk that's what they did to the rupert murdoch empire why can't they do it to the bbc Uh, As far
5: as I know, Mike, and you can put me right on this, I haven't yet heard from the Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, Mm. who, of course, was uh, former director of public prosecutions calling for any legal action on this. And uh, this was the man who hauled 22 Sun journalists through the courts for publishing stories which weren't just true. They actually saved lives rather than causing deaths.
1: Right. And that's extraordinary, isn't it? And his attack dog, or Gordon Brown's attack dog, Tom Watson, uh, who has since been ludicrously uh, and completely and utterly um, made ridiculous by his sort of support of Carl Beach and the ludicrous uh, uh, stories about, uh, about paedophilia in high echelons of the country. But he was also uh, a man who was full square against newspaper men um, and who at one stage even called um, the Murdoch business a criminal enterprise.
5: Well, you could almost, when you're talking about conspiracies, you could accuse the Labour Party, the Labour leader at the time, uh, Sir Keir Starmer, who subsequently became a Labour MP for a safe Labour seat, and indeed the uh, Crown Prosecution Service of a conspiracy of their own to mm. get some journalists. And this is a question of free speech. Free speech is a, a foundation stone of democracy. Making stories up and lying and cheating and
1: forging documents is quite the reverse, isn't that? Mm. Well, it is. And I would have thought it's also criminal. I can confirm, by the way, having just checked that Keir Starmer uh, strangely hasn't tweeted at all today about anything. No, and I understand
5: Hacked <laughs> Off has been pretty silent, too. They're yeah. the ones who hounded the uh, News International, which, by the way, was the one named by these forged documents as the source of payments to the Princess of Wales most trusted security staff. Yes. So I mean, is there a real concoction of lies and deceit here? Yeah,
1: there really is. And I I've simply fail to, be, to, to believe, Trevor, that this was all only known by uh, maybe one or two people on the production staff uh, of Panorama, that nobody else at the BBC was pushing through payments to the forger, for example, who was paid for whatever work he was doing. You know, um, clearly that was some kind of breach of, of trust, if not a breach of the law. There must have been people inside the BBC organisation The Sun this morning rather helpfully puts out a whole list of names of people, including, you know, Anne Sloman, Lord Burt, Richard Peel, Tim Souter, Tim Garden, Lord Hall. I think they must all be culpable, mustn't they?
5: Well, I think that this runs deep and wide in the BBC, in fact. Uh, uh, Martin Bashir, his reputation, and his name, were uh, the subject of considerable controversy within the BBC at fairly high levels. I mean, John Humphreys talks about the time that when uh, Bashir first met him, he quoted a mutual friend as saying that he must get to know John because he was the finest journalist in the business. And then subsequently, when John mentioned this to others, they he discovered he had exactly the same conversation with them. And that began to uh, raise doubts about Bashir very, very early in his career, and they persisted throughout the rest of it.
1: Yeah. And also, I mean, you and I, Trevor, much to possibly our chagrin now, have been in this business a very long time. You don't work with people like Bashir without realising what sort of an individual he is, you know, because it must have been pretty obvious that he was, uh, in, in, for want of a better word, a shyster.
5: Well, uh, he was and is, and uh, is a congenital liar. But mm. what is so surprising is the people who, for instance, Steve Hewlett, who was the producer of yeah. that particular Panorama programme, who I knew and respected, was complicit up to his back teeth in this. He knew what the allegations were about uh, Bashir and the forged documents and told everybody who inquired about it, including the guy who forced them, that it was none of his effing business.
1: Really? Because, I mean, Steve was, was painted as a bit of a saintly figure, wasn't he? I mean, he's dead now, so we can't really besmirch his character. But, you know, he was a guy who was kind of a lecturer in, in, in journalistic ethics. He was supposedly held up by the BBC, whenever he appeared on any kind of media programme, uh, as the man to go to uh, as to what sort of judgments you should be making morally, you know, whether the newspapers were acting in the right way. I mean, it's extraordinary that he knew that. Well, he was the arbiter of media ethics yeah. as the
5: chairman of the media program, the media show. Yeah, uh, And that was a position he held with considerable authority for many years. And uh, as I say, I didn't know anything about the Bashir allegations at the time, but um, I regarded him as a, as a respected colleague. Yeah. But I mean, what was going on behind the scenes there? is redolent of the worst uh, sort of cowboy days of Fleet Street at its worst. Mm. And OK, sometimes Fleet Street and indeed newspapers and broadcasters go too far in their exuberance. But um, this was the BBC. This is the arbiter of taste, goodwill and uh, authoritative, trustworthy reporting. And where does it stand now? That reputation is in smithereens.
1: Well, it must be totally unprecedented for the, the heir to the throne and his brother, uh, the two you know sons of Princess Diana, to actually come out in such strong terms uh, to criticise the BBC. Um, I'm not sure what they want to happen next because they haven't really said. But I mean... Surely, at the very least, there has to be some form of, of punishment. Uh, there has to be some investigation from outside the BBC because they've proven themselves to be incapable of running their own investigation fairly.
5: Well, may I make a suggestion to the police? How yes. about conspiracy to pervert the uh, course of justice? Yep. Which is the trump-tump uh, medieval charge that was leveled at 22 Sun journalists, all of them innocent, All of them acquitted. Yes. But there were no grounds for that vendetta, that uh, witch hunt. Yes. There are grounds here for a proper investigation into those documents, the forged documents and the trail of lies and deceit that have followed this story for the last 25
1: years yeah and the story's done something that i never thought would ever happen uh, which is to make charles spencer seem like a sort of palatable individual he comes across as very reasonable in this when he says uh basically that this was the beginning of what led to his sister dying in a tunnel uh, under the streets of paris because she didn't trust anyone to such an extent that she relied upon uh, the rather dodgy bodyguards given to her by Mohammed al-fayed and his son
5: Yes, and we need to be very grateful to Charles, all uh, for for uh, Charles Spencer for the fact that he kept detailed mm. notes, contemporaneous notes taken at the time of his introduction to his sister Diana, and the fact that they are all dated and accurate and uh, exactly as happened at the time. If he hadn't kept those documents, as many journalists would have thrown away by now, if he hadn't kept those intact. Um, the Dyson inquiry would never have got off the ground.
1: No, quite. And I mean, the BBC is in a pretty bad place at the moment. You know, we know that their charter is, is up for renewal. Uh, it looks as though <laughs> at the moment they're still going to be able to charge uh, the ludicrous licence fee for, for some years to come into the future. But with every kind of um, year that passes, they become less and less relevant it seems to me the programming gets worse the news is now unpalatable uh, and unwatchable because it's so biased many people now I think trust the BBC less and less and less I think it was only six percent in a recent poll trusted the BBC news you know the likes of Laura kunzberg has kind of killed off any any belief in 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 in, um, in complete and utter uh, neutrality um, what do you think is going to happen to the BBC Trevor
5: It's going to be a big struggle to regain that trust that it's now blown to smithereens. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's track record over many years uh, of soft left or even fairly hard left on occasions uh, bias, which they deny absolutely ferociously, but it's abundantly clear Mm. to voters everywhere that um, they have a world view on such subjects as uh, uh, Brexit, on Israel, on uh, on woke uh, and... and, uh, Knee bending, bending the knee, all of that sort of thing. They have this moral high ground uh, or have had that moral high ground. I think that moral high ground has been smashed now. And I think it's going to be a very hard uphill struggle for the new director general to reassert it. Yeah.
1: And I mean, would you, like me, favour something slightly smaller, something slightly less kind of... um, Difficult to manage, really, because, I mean, all of their, for example, um, they've got something like 64 different local radio stations, which have have completely sort of squandered uh, anything like uh, a, a local press. They've managed to sort of suppress the local press to such an extent because they've just taken all the money out of the market. You can't start an independent radio station anywhere because you can't compete with the BBC. You know, they're producing television programs that very few people watch. Uh, In smaller and smaller numbers, they spend vast amounts of money on, um, you know, diversity courses and management structures and buildings all over the place, and I think it just needs to be pared down to something which is a normal-sized. You know, if it was a media organisation like like our own, and you know, let's not pretend that we're neutral here because we're not, but you know, we couldn't do the things that they do. People would just go, "Sorry, we haven't got the money." Hmm.
5: Well, they do have the money. They have five billion pounds in cash cash in hand every year reliably they don't have to go out and earn it they've got it and for that's over a five-year period and they've long been too big for their boots mike and uh, they do they're unmanageable new director generals and chairmen come in and go and they try and do something as tim davy the new director general is trying to do at the moment and they find this enormous amorphous blob where which is populated by people who have a very same like minded view of the world, the world view of uh, them being right and everyone else being mm. wrong and a bit stupid, and uh, that has to change. And I, do, I frankly don't see how it can change as long as the the shape of the BBC and the way it's funded continue. Yeah,
1: I mean, unless it's made to change it, of course. And as we say, Sir Keir Starmer's very quiet <coughs> today. I haven't seen any government ministers actually speaking out on this either, uh, and I think they need to, don't they? Well, I think that
5: something has to change. It has to change visibly, hmm. and it has to change soon. I think that what has happened in the past with the, um, the Savile uh, catastrophe, Jimmy Savile, yeah. uh, Cliff Richard, all of these have been sort of smoothed over. They've passed into the into the distant past, and the BBC blithely carries on business as usual. That has to change, and it has to become answerable and accountable. And it has become visibly neutral. I don't think that it can continue with its absurd comedy shows, which are perpetually taking the mickey out of a government which has only recently been elected with a landslide majority. Mm. Nobody cares about uh, satire as long as you get a bit of both sides being...
1: No, quite. Well, somebody did did ask me earlier on Twitter, I wonder whether Have I Got News For You Uh, will be making fun of Panorama. I very much doubt it.
5: (laughs) I very much doubt it too. Uh, uh, have i got news for you has frankly lost all credibility but then so so many other bbc radio and television alleged comedy shows
1: Mm. no absolutely right well listen trevor great to talk to you thank you very much indeed as ever uh, for joining us trevor kevin our political columnist at the sun uh, saying as what i think everybody's saying today surely something has to change surely someone somewhere is going to say to the prime minister are you sure about this should we not get these guys in Should we not at the very least ask them a few questions? Should we not perhaps have a public inquiry? Should we not get them uh, on a a table inside a committee room in the House of Commons to put them through their paces to say to Tim Davy, the Director General, what are you doing about this? How are you going to prevent this from happening? The heir to the throne has said effectively that you basically put his mother on a path to destruction which led to her death in a Paris tunnel. This is not a joke. This is not small potatoes. This is a big deal. And the BBC needs to be cut down to size. It needs to be shipped out the door. Quite frankly, if it was up to me, I'd shut it down tomorrow and let them start again with the bits that actually work, which ain't much, I have to say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It's 10 to 1. It's Friday. It's time for this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Perrier Awards. <laughs> What's going on? There's nothing happening. No, on. no, no, no nothing one's waving. On. Didn't get the brief,
6: they
1: say. <laughs> we have got the B team on today, haven't yeah. we? <laughs> nothing
6: personal. Oh dear. Mark
1: Gale has absented himself. Yes. Someone told me he's on holiday.
6: He, yeah, he's gone to Broadstairs. I bet he I wishes believe. he's
1: gone to Spain now because well, he could go to Spain.
6: I mean, he could, could get a quick flight. Yeah. I mean,
1: maybe so. Yeah. But as you say, you'd have to quarantine on the way back, though, wouldn't you? Yes. More than that. No, I've upset wouldn't. a lot of people in Sheffield, apparently, by oh, saying that they might call themselves Blades. Yes. Apparently some people only call themselves Blades if they're Sheffield United as opposed to well, when Wednesday. You,
6: when you said that, I thought it it, it would uh, would be quite divisive. So
1: Owls uh, as well. So you can be an yeah. Owl or you can be... What if you don't play football or support football teams? Well,
6: yeah, that's it. I mean, yeah, I was going to say Steeler, but I don't know if that's...
1: Steelers? I, I don't that's know. That's Pittsburgh, isn't it?
6: Oh, yeah, maybe. Oh, Sheffield Steelers? I don't know. They Is could that be. Hockey? Sounds like a
1: football team, doesn't it? it
2: Sounds like a good one, thing. Yeah. Anyway, let's get well, up. We haven't got much time. Uh, it's time for the. How uh, do you. Are yeah. to start coaxing no, can't someone,
1: be having that.
6: No, sir. You through. Someone's whispering. with you. Okay, so welcome to the Perry <laughs> Awards. You. This is where we look back on the so-called so called Independent Republic cool. of Mike Graham yes. and choose our favourite moments. So. Following tradition, the first Perry Award goes to you, Mr Graham, uh, for the wrong-namer of the week.
1: Game of Thrones and how we should do away with classic (laughs) names and call all our children Arya, Danaries or Quinn. (laughs) Daenerys? Is that wrong? It's
6: Daenerys is it? Yeah. Honestly, well, I've
1: never seen Game of Thrones.
6: Well, yeah. It's
1: a stupid name anyway, isn't it? Daenerys.
6: Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I don't know where it is. Do you know th-
1: anyone called Daenerys?
6: No, but after the uh, segment that we did, the drop zone yes. uh, with the Game of Thrones, yeah. I'm sure there might be a Daenerys, Daenerys baby yeah, on the way. Very possibly. Yeah. There we are. Uh, okay. So uh, we headed over to Portugal for a travel update earlier on in the week. This award is the technical incompetence of the week. Of course.
4: Yeah. Somehow they're still coming in from India, but Mr. John Needed to sign that business thing.
1: What happened there? He had that it,
6: there we go. Oh, Pause heard, for effects. That was funny, that wasn't yeah. it? Well, I mean, yeah, well, it It just kind of went. <laughs> 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 yes, I've never we, heard that
1: before. No. I mean, I've heard sort of people's voices going in and out. Yes. I've heard them kind of slower or going like that, but I've never heard the speeding up one.
6: Well, there we go. there's was the first for everything. You could do the whole show in 20 minutes. Yeah.
1: it's like that.
6: I might do that to the podcast. fast forward. There we go. you might. You've already done that. Well, that's true. Yeah. Uh, So, over to the pub show, and what a sterling show it was. Wasn't it great? Might I say. Uh, This award goes to Lee Anderson for the wrong radio presenter of the week.
1: Yeah, it's this new variant. Well, I say it's a new variant, Mark. It's been around for two or three years. It's called the Islington variant. <laughs> uh, Do you know? I gave him the benefit of the doubt because I <laughs> thought he's from, um, you know, Ashfield. I think it is. Yeah, yeah, it? yeah. And he said Mark, and I thought maybe he's saying that like Mac, you know, <laughs> Mac. Mac. Mac, 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 Now Mac, but he did say Mark, didn't he? He that's definitely not good. said
6: Mark. Mark Graham. Yeah, I you mean, think he is. Who does? I'll start he think calling he is? him
1: something else as well. Yeah, that's no good. Maybe
6: Lewis. Anderson. Tell him it's,
1: it's Mike. I will. Tell him it's your fault. <laughs>
6: Every, it always is it Mike it also uh, yes. say Mark, Mark. yeah, yeah. Um, okay and we can't we also can't forget Kevin O'Sullivan who gets an award for another wrong namer of the week
1: I would suggest Lee I don't know what you think it, it is and um, Baroness Hui, who, who, of course Hui, <laughs> 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 Hong Bar- Kong Hoey <laughs> oh
6: gosh Baroness who yes
1: baroness Huey. she oh, won't like that
6: no, she won't like that, uh, so Ian Collins gets an award Ooh, for yes. the wrong radio station of the week
3: oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand you're listening to Ian Collins on tech on technology <laughs> on talk radio, even. <laughs> <laughs> On technology, on talk
1: radio, I think you could say. Very good.
6: Technology, on talk radio. It's, technology. Like, it's like Kevin when he said Tom Radio. Tom the other Radio,
1: yeah. Well, he did to say talk sport, which is also something that you, if you've ever worked on talk sport, you yeah. might say. Oh, do oh, I've, really? I mean, I used to do it a couple of every now and again because I'd forget oh my goodness it's just because it kind of comes out without you realising yeah You know.
6: oh well well there you go I, spe- yes. I suppose it's what you get used to you as do well. yeah
1: um, I used to give out the old number from a Talk 107 in Edinburgh oh did you because you sort of get the old uh, 0845 whatever the number was I can't remember what it was yeah. now but when I first started working down here I used to give out the wrong number
6: oh no and did they ever get calls
1: uh, no, because they had been shut down.
6: Oh, <laughs> you haven't. I didn't... managed
1: to get them shut down. Oh, well, they fired me, and then about six months later, they shut the whole station because it didn't work without me, obviously.
6: Well, it's like GMB. You
1: know, but don't mention it to the boss.
6: I won't. No, we we, we, we won't mention that one. No. Um. So Rod Little spoke to us about the riveting yes. fly on the wall documentary of Keith Starmer. Mm. Uh, when his internet connection went funny. This is the Perry Award for yet another technical incompetence of the week.
1: I didn't see anyone making fun of the Palestinian flag, funny enough, did you? Oh, I think Rod's frozen. <laughs> no, no, they, no they, they really like the Palestinian flag. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that, 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 that probably, one's OK. And I see also that the uh, Football League... It, have says also... on my, it says on my screen that I'm unstable. <laughs> now, I've known that for a very, very long time.
6: <laughs> oh, dear.
1: And he finally became so unstable we had to cut him off.
6: Yes, yes, exactly. But hey, you know. Well, that's, it I happens say? to all of us. It does. Um, finally mm. uh, and while I, so I was producing Patrick Christie's on Saturday well, yeah. yes uh, yeah, you the, never
1: stopped working do you
6: uh I don't think so <laughs> Well, neither do you Mike that's to be true. quite honest yeah. and and the boss says that there's never a day off in this industry that's true so you know Except two, for
1: when you take one
6: well oh I know I'm yeah, sorry that's all right. I'm back now that's good um anyway um so while I was there there was a bit of a microphone incident and mm. he accidentally pulled it off but anyway <laughs> we've
1: pulled off the microphone yeah,
6: and if it if it was recording it would have been a hilarious perrier anyway mm. i wanted to get patrick in the perrier awards so here is um his award for the wrong date of the week
4: and she's um, going to be cooking actually at uh, the nat geo traveler festival which is today uh, oh sorry today now 17th and uh, the 18th of july sorry i should have
1: just carried on reading uh, the 17th and 18th of july yeah
6: so we got there eventually. Yeah, just
1: read what you've got in front of you. Yeah, exactly. Don't try and get it complicated.
6: Yeah, no, no, don't steer off the script.
1: No, exactly right. Very Uh, good.
6: Thank you. So that was the Perry Awards. There will definitely be more next week.
1: The Perrier Awards
0: on Talk Radio.